Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is somebody um, that I, I, I met in person for the first time only moments ago. Uh, we've become friendly online, but I felt like I knew him long before from watching over 200 hours, over 250 hours uh, of programming. That I mean, that's just good eats, right? Yeah, that's just good eats. And uh, I've certainly watched more uh, than that of you, of you and other shows, and that is Alton Brown. Um, who you know from Good Eats, Iron Chef America, from the Alton Brown cast, and from uh, many more shows. Uh, I, I've long been fascinated in your work. Uh, I am tempted to start with your work with REM, but I won't. Thanks for being here in your short time that you're in New York. Happy to. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Trust me. I'm, I, we're, we're mutual fans. And yeah, we did actually meet on Twitter. We did. Yeah, which is a, a, it's a wonderful thing. It is. I think it's a yeah. wonderful thing. And I actually want to talk to you about your Twitter sure. identity at, at some point. And by the way, you can talk about REM all you want. I my, my I owe my entire life trajectory to one music video. It's true. To the fact that you were the cinematographer yeah. on the one I love. On the one I love. Yeah. That I happened. I, I had I had left Athens to uh, I'd become a Steadicam operator uh, back when I was you know still young and, and cameras were heavy, um, and I'd left town and then I, I heard that I, REM was going to have a new album and I knew that whenever REM at that time had a new album they would always produce a video out of this little production company in Athens Georgia and so I went back to Athens and got a job at this production company and waited. That you just knew. Yeah, I did. You anticipated. I did know. And you, you. That's very Chuck Rhodes like. Yeah, um, I can just say in that you kind of got there ahead of time. I, I didn't spend my. I didn't land. blow my entire trust fund though, uh, in order to make my scheme work. Um, no, but <laughs> I just, no. I mean, there's a. a I, I did. It was it was Machiavellian I, in, in, in a way. I, I did some good work there very cheaply while I waited, but it took six months. And sure enough, the music video walked in six months later, and I was waiting for it. I'm always interested in this question about. Um, and I wrote it down about the, the difference between people who are um, reactive versus people who really plan and strategize a- ahead. And I, I was going to ask you which you were, but you've answered it. Before no, because ask. because the truth is in, no in the now. rest of life, you can't say no no, now. in most of my life, I am the reactor. There, there are only maybe five times in life that I've just kind of roll big dice to do something. But in, in that case, I didn't have that many fantastic options anyway. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't living some kind of like glamorous lifestyle. I didn't have work up one side and down the other. It was slow. I was working, but it wasn't glamorous. So taking a job, you know, albeit a low paying one, wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like I was working in an oil field or something, you know, waiting to, to find a chunk of gold or anything. No, sure. Uh, that makes sense to me. But there's this this idea, and I, I believe there are five things. I, I always I talk often about the fact that I probably had five epiphanic moments in my life, and yeah. those five moments of insight changed the direction of my life each time in an incredibly substantial. Yes, way. and that's why there are only five of them because it was more than Th- that. That's right. It, then it would be, be bullshit. Many, I mean, it, yeah. was, it, it would be bullshit. But REM, and then I'm going to move off this. But, sure, but, but but you know they are my favorite band of all time, and although that my career isn't directly related to their work, I often say that. Um, Michael Stipe and R.E.M. saved my life when I was 19. I was very sad. And they, driving around listening to R.E.M., this one bad year of my life, gave me this. Which album, from, by the way? Was weird, the no, Fables, which uh, is a very sad album. It's a, it's a bit mopey. Uh, but, and it was a cold. I was in a Jeep CJ7 that had broken windows in the Boston cold. And I had two cassettes in the car, Nebraska and Fables of the Reconstruction. So it was a dark time. But... I went to see the tour mm-hmm. at the Wang Center, and the one I lo- they played the one I love early year, years before the one I love they played right. begin to begin with the first song they uh-huh. played, and Makes they sense. and they played that song ahead, and then we all had to do, there was no no recordings of it, we just all had to remember that fire song, yeah, for year, you know yeah. for sure a long time until it came out, um, so they affected me deeply too, and that video is amazing. I can't believe you, you did it. Thank you. Was were, was my, working with Michael Stipe? How specific was he? about the way he wanted you to shoot it. Um, he was com- almost completely hands-off because he, uh, the person that directed it um, was a, is a painter 
um, this big New York painter at the time named Robert Longo, mm-hmm. who's um, famous for a lot of uh, uh, black and white drawings of people in suits falling. Um, and so Robert knew what he wanted, but he spoke in very painterly type terms. And, and, and there wasn't, he hadn't done a lot of directing at that point. And so um, a lot of it was left up to kind of just this ongoing conversation between Robert and myself. And then Michael kind of kept himself out of it. We did some shooting at Michael's house at the time, uh, which was just freaking peculiar. Uh, a house with one piece of furniture in it. He had a bed and, and a kitchen table and one chair. It was all there was. Um, so that was a little bit odd. Um, but, um, you know, the main thing I always remember about Michael was, was he was polite. He was extremely polite. Courtly manners. Very very. Um, and all of the guys were really nice. You know, I mean, I, I, I had met them all because I went to the clubs. I was in Athens in the eighties, so it was hard to avoid them. So you saw uh, Pylon. I saw everybody. I saw everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, because it was the eighties and it was, it was Athens, but, uh, but the working relationship was, was, was very different. It was very professional, very organized. Why, why do you say change the direction of your life? Well, because there's once once that video was done and the song was a massive hit and I remember them playing the the demo tape for me and I was like, crap, this is everything will be different after this. You know, that this is the song that this is not alternative radio, you know, college stuff anymore. This is now serious. Yeah, because Fall on Me was the closest to a hit on yeah, the album before. But it was nothing like the one I love, you know. Um and and so I heard the song and I was like, Oh crap. If, if I get this right, you know, things there'll be work, um, shot it and then did some other work with that same director, uh, some other things for MTV. And then I immediately went into commercials, TV commercials. And I as was a DP or as a director, for a short time as a, as a DP, but I went to, uh, to director cameraman by, by the time I was 26, I was, I was, you know, DGA and gone. Um, and, and, and then I shot a, spots for, for almost 10 years. And that directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's amazing. I love that story. And has has Michael Stipe, have you, or Buck or, or Mills, have you come across those guys since? Do they understand that you were that guy? I ran into Peter Buck one time. After uh, you became and, famous? Yeah, yeah. After he became famous and he did not remember me from the shoot. He knew who you were yeah, but did not Alton but Brown. had no idea that, that we had worked together for days. Yeah. Was that all right? Yeah, it's fine. Come on. He he's seen a lot of DPs, he's and a seen lot of a sound lot. guys. These guys have all seen a lot of, of everything, you know. And because I'll be really honest, you know, people come up to me and talk about working with me on season two of Good Eats, and I'm like, and it was really a good year, and I have no idea who you are. I had someone, I'm, yeah, I walked by a set the other day, and someone came up and gave me a huge hug, mm-hmm. and they'd worked on one of my shows, mm-hmm. movies, and mm-hmm. uh, I knew that I knew it was. I had some sense of it, but I couldn't have told you the department, mm-hmm. and I had to keep I had to keep asking questions. Yeah, and you're trying to ask questions in a way that don't tip that I don't know who you are. Yeah, it's, and that's a that's a slippery slope because you see the moment you know in their eyes they're like, oh my god, you don't remember me, and then it's everybody's worse, embarrassed. Worse for you because you're famous, but it's it's very uh, yeah, I can I can no, sympathize. It's, with it. it's not it's not good. All right, all right. Th- th- does that I'm, mean we're bad people, shallow people? Just you, okay. just you. Um, I I just want to say no. You're you're you want no. The fact that you um want there to be a connection makes you a good part. You're trying. To connect, you're I'm just noticing. incapable of doing you're it. Noticing, <laughs> and you have empathy for the I have empathy. situation. I do. That that's you're you're fighting the good fight, then, sir. Maybe I'm just losing it. No, well, I mean, um, there's no doubt about it scientifically. Yeah, I only have so much RAM. We only have so much hard drive. So eventually, you start overriding. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's clear. Yeah. So your show, the show that made you famous, to me, came from such a specific point of view that it's very clearly a piece of art, and to make something that personal not only in content, like Batali's first show was that personal and specific from the standpoint of content too, I think. From content, sure. In the yeah. standpoint of yeah. content. Mm-hmm. But in form, your show, visual, sonic, performance, seems to me to be incredibly rare in that format. Almost non-existent. So like that's the, my frame here, uh, that I'm talking to somebody who has made specific personal art. Does that make sense to you? Was that your intention? Well, I think at the time I wasn't using the word art because I was young enough to find that to be a pretentious word. And then I later realized that art's more about intention than what the actual product is. Um, And the intention is the intention is that you are making something singularly for yourself. Um, And, and so, yes, in, in, in that as, or from that perspective, Good Eats was a work of art because it was nothing but me doing exactly precisely what I wanted to do. And above all, I want to do something that hadn't been done before. I had craved that for a long time. I just couldn't find the right 
envelope for that, I think. Yeah, it would be a, a way of putting it. So yeah, um, it was something that I wanted to express and I wanted to do something that was filmically, visually challenging that uh, would catch people's eyes. And I wanted to be very dense so that people would watch them over and over again. Um, so that was conscious. That was conscious, That's yeah. what I'm saying. There's a, a, <clears throat> there were a series of choices, it seemed to me, that you made each time that there, there was a, as I say, a level, a personal vision being expressed through these choices. Yes, that separated it from run-of-the-mill, not only just from run-of-the-mill television, but that really made it sui generis. Wow, that I hadn't thought about. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe. <clears throat> yeah, its own, th- you know, its own thing. Um, oh boy, Maybe. Yeah. Hadn't, I've never, it's funny. I mean, I've had plenty of time to think and that hasn't been something that's crossed my mind before, to be honest. Well, that's good. Um, I mean, that's fine. It's just that I was, I, I'm sitting here today and it's been off the, it's still on the air, but it's been Well, it's on, it's on Cooking Channel and Hulu. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it hasn't been, you haven't been making new episodes. I have yet. not made a new episode since 2012. Yeah. So it gives you time to, it gives the, the viewer time to sort of appreciate how much of an outlier how much of an outlier it, it was. Well, I'd like to think there was an outlier on a few different levels, uh, that it was an informational outlier, that nobody was really talking about food science at the time. But in the end, we were all filmmakers trying to do something that was challenging visually and from storytelling standpoint, from structure standpoint. And it's always funny that people say, well, you're in the, the unscripted category. And I'm like, yeah, and that's why I've spent so many hundred hours of my freaking life filling bank boxes with scripts, you know, because everything was written. It was a single camera shoot. Nobody else was doing a food show that was single camera. We were making movies because most of us either had made movies or commercials none of us came from television not a single member of my crew worked in like episodic television right no it's um i'm just so struck by still the sort of i mean so many people who find a way as like artists to break through there's this anger that drives them yeah this fundamental misunderstanding there is and and to me i've tried to recognize that it's atavistic now it doesn't serve me anymore be, be, Probably not, but it still tastes good to cough it up. Yeah, it <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, yeah, there it is. It does, um, but I could feel it. It's like, um, you know, you've achieved all this stuff, and yet that's the, the fact that someone would about. say yeah. unscripted drives you I mad. Bristle, I bristle. It wasn't fucking unscripted. Wasn't I every scripted every bit. Mother, yeah. Uh, but the thing is that also, you know, unscripted represents this kind of. Oh, not laziness. Well, almost like it's, it's, it's luck. Almost like an element of... Yeah, you think that stuff just happens like that, you know? Um, and if you don't have a script, you can't possibly expect your prop people or your set people to work the kind of stuff that we did with moving walls. And I mean, I remember the day that we decided... Did you think I, I'm chasing <clears throat> an 18 because it's I'm guessing on the lens? Yes. We're not, <laughs> we're not guessing. There's no guessing uh, But there was here. just one day you were saying... Oh, well, it's like, it's like, I need to move. I've got a camera and we had used Steadicam an awful lot, but occasionally Steadicam, there are things that just won't do. And so one day we're, we're doing this dolly track across the table and I'm like, where you and I are now, the camera, um, which I was like on a Chapman. I don't remember what we were on, was on one side of the, of the table. And I was on the other side of the table and, um, we were going to like dolly up and down the table, looking at a bunch of different stuff. And I, and of course I had to scoot myself and i'm like well the scooting is really inconvenient so somebody grabbed me like a pancake and for people that don't know these are these are sizes of boxes uh that that, that we use and a very very thin one's called a pancake you put four plates on it things like that and they they grabbed some wheels off of uh, another little dolly thing we had and stuck it on there so that i could could slide but then i i got obsessed with having everything line up right so sure enough during the lunch break my key grip builds a speed rail rig connecting my little dolly to the camera dolly so that now i'm completely free to move with the camera and so we do this whole series up and down the table and people when they watched it didn't it was like what what just happened was the table moving with the I'm like no but i was locked to the to you the you camera did a version of the spike lee on the dot you did this yeah. version of the spike yeah. lee actor on it's pulling the actor on yes. the dolly yes only doing it laterally only doing it laterally and so yeah we, you know at that point we came to the conclusion that the mantra of the show had to be we will do a shot every single day that we have never done before and so by the time we wrapped 252 episodes, we were going through so much speed rail, so much rope, so much, I mean, we, cause we were my soundstage, cause I, I had bought a stage by that point. I mean, we were flying entire rooms and, and bringing them down piece by piece during shots and orchestrating these three, four, five minute long shots where people would watch on TV and all of a sudden like, there's not a cut in there. 
I'm like, no. Well, how did you guys CG that? No, that's not CG. Um, it, it was all physical. It was all on camera. And, and we were doing it just for us. We, were, we became obsessed. It was very well, kind of apocalypse now because I went insane after right. a while. Not, uh, both apocalypse, that's funny. Both apocalypse now in the character journey in apocalypse now and, and Apocalypse. And what I meant was Coppola. Coppola's journey. Although, but think about the movie. I mean, the movie has a great uh, synergy with what he was going. Well, right, there's a great synergy it's, it's, with what he was going through. It's a, it's a, it's a bio, it's a biography. I'm saying what Sheen's uh, going through, what Brando's going yeah. through, and what Coppola were going through. It was all the same going through. I mean, yeah. If I ever get to interview or talk to Larry Fishburne, I just need to really know what he remembers. Of, of that, he was at there for 14, like, 14, and he was 14, there like two for years. two years. You can actually see his him grow and his face change. I, I'm obsessed with with that movie simply because it's it's. I cannot imagine what it was like to you know th- that wonderful and documentary that Eleanor made, uh, Hearts of Darkness, where you know Coppola's like, I'm thinking of killing myself. I don't have pages. I don't have. At least when I went in every day, I mean, I always had script. Script. I might change it. And I, I rewrote to the last second, but it was always there. There was always script. I can't imagine being in the Philippines, seeing your giant village you just built, blown away by a typhoon. Your star, who's your second star, having replaced Harvey Keitel, has a heart attack in the middle of shooting. The Philippine army's taking away your helicopters. All of these things are happening. And then you, there you are spending huge amounts of money while your DP, you know, Vittorio Storero and his Italian camera crew are cooking pasta. You know, I was going to say, this amazing. is the way that chefs talk about a really bad night. Well, by the had, way. He had a very bad night night for three I mean, years he was slammed you know? in, I mean, yeah. he was slammed in the weeds like, in the weeds for three, in years. The weeds for three years for three entire and of course he had done years. it to himself which is uh, and with his money greatly yeah obviously. godfather money and and yeah i mean the one difference i, I mean i think about him a lot in, in, in the fact that that he the way in which he felt lost is a great inspiration to me all the time <clears> and doing any of this kind of work because it means you can find your way out yeah because, you can and you're in, in because if even he out. i mean if even coppola truly felt lost the one of the great masters who ever lived a guy who up to that you know he'd already made three of the best movies of all time and written a fourth right he already made both godfathers and the conversation and the and conversation Patton, and he had written Patton, and so he had done those things before Apocalypse did he write Patton by himself no he was one was john of Milius a on couple that? of writers who wrote it. no john Milius was on apocalypse now never mind no sorry um no Patton. there was i think a book yeah and there was a director so it was and adapted. it wasn't coppola it was and then he um like in that speech, a lot of that speech came from Patton, the yeah. opening speech. But I hear Coppola in that speech. I, if you think about it, I, I know he wrote Let's it. Make the other sucker die for his country. Yeah, incredibly put a lot of stuff together. But but he was prepared. So I would think by the end you weren't as um, kind of freaked out. No, I was never freaked out. But I, I but I did kind of go out of control. You know, it's like one of the most dangerous things you can do is own your own production company because then you start realizing, well, I can choose to not make money today. Like Coppola. Yeah. And there would be days where I would be so obsessed with a sequence or a shot where I would simply, and, and the, the other unfortunate thing is that my business partner I was married to, uh, which is maybe one of the reasons we're not anymore. Uh, but, you know, I'd be like, I, I, I've got to, I got to know, I got to get this. That's tough, man. I'm that not partner make money who's, today. who is not, who's, who, 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 whose obsessions, whose job is to actually protect you from your own obsessions. Well, they to called serve me. the show and right. protect you from the obsessions, that's a tough gig. They, they had a, my, my keys in, in several of my departments, especially my art department, had a, 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 a keyword or a kind of a, 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 a secret code uh, to, to my wife. And if they thought that I was going seriously overboard, they simply called her up and said, Snowflake. Because it meant that I was running my snowflake factory and I was making precious little snowflakes. And then sure enough, she would come down from her office now, and that, uh, stare at that, the back that, of my that, head. That's and... not the terrible usage of snowflake that's no, out there in the world. It's, it's, means, it's not the worst. Although he's saying precious little snowflake, and this was an innocent, a far more innocent time. Yes, it was when, a very, very innocent time. And that wasn't uh, uh, is an offensive uh, no, word. It just <laughs> meant that I was trying to. Um, yeah, no, make, you were trying to make precious was, little snowflakes. I was trying to make Fabergé eggs instead of deviled eggs, you know. Yeah. But, but as a filmmaker, when when you you your vision has gotten you where you are and you know that you're doing work that is satisfies that at the end of the day you're like yeah yeah I feel really good about what I did today this week and the way it cut together yeah I love it when it cuts the I sit and I see it in my head and I because I don't shoot coverage and 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 it goes and it's like and I my editor calls me because we would literally finish the editorial on a show the day that we finished shooting it and she'd be like yeah we're we're three and a half minutes long and I'm like perfect now it's time for me to go in with my razor blades and start and you know every day it'd be like walk out great so we made exactly on time all of our breaks are in the right place I feel good and I and I got off on it. 
Yeah, of it was course. an addiction. Then you start getting addicted, and you need more and more drugs to feed the addiction. So you need more and more speed rail and more and more camera stuff, and you want better and better lenses. And then and, and then somebody still, you, and you were still insistent. It seems to me on delivering the content through the oh, form. You, so you're doing 600, 600 pages on average of research for every episode. That's got to be regurgitated through. Scripts have to be written, and then I'm constantly screwing with them. So the the one thing that people will say that was good about the experience of working with me is that I was very democratic and listening to everybody's ideas, and I pushed people to do stuff no one had asked them to do before. So everybody got to push their their skill set, which which is good. Um, yeah, that's a good general. But yeah. if you have to go to yeah. war and you have to take the hill, mm-hmm. find the best way to do it. Find, and use and find a way, each of your soldiers in the way strongest way possible. That's the best for them because that'll serve yep. the unit in the best and, way. And as everybody, well. everybody that worked with me has careers in the industry and continues that's, to work. Yeah, the and coaching tree the thing best. is really satisfying yeah, when you can look out so. and see your coaching tree. It makes you feel good. Exactly. And yeah. I've never heard that expression before. Coaching tree. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Good. Feel free. Take it. It's from the world of sports, obviously. But yeah. um, when. You said uh, in there, you know, ultimately only doing it for us, only doing it for, for me. Well, yeah. And I know that 95% of the people who came up to you <clears throat> only talked about content or your passion mm-hmm. or your your commitment. They understood you were doing something intellectually different, I think. I imagine most people understood you were teaching them. Uh, people appreciate and in, 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 in talked about the learning thing that people say, come up to me, thank you for teaching me, blah, blah, blah. You know, usually the, the best things that people could say to me is thanks for making a show that my whole family can watch together. Yes. Um, and nobody's insulted. Nobody's bored. It's smart. And, and the other one is thanks for teaching me how to fill in the blank. And those, those are the things you want to hear the most. Yeah, I mean, I've, well, I've, I've, I, what year did your show first come on the air? 1999, July 7th, right. 1999. So uh, our son was two and our mm-hmm. daughter was not yet born. And I, I, I watched hundreds of hours with both of my kids as they've, we, they've you know, they, when I told them, oh, uh, Alton Brown's coming on the podcast, they both from where they are in the world sent like, uh, holy shit, texts, <laughs> which is great because, you know, there's a lot of, in this, you're in our where we make our show, our, where we make billions. There's a yeah. lot of like um, people to walk through, but they were very excited about you. So That's your cool. show, it seems to me, like often, and, and I think this is true throughout the stuff you do, often examined truths and challenged received wisdom while it tried to demystify that which seemed cloaked. And was all that stuff in your original mission statement or did that develop over time? This idea of looking at what we hey, you think this is simple or you think the way to do this is this or your grandmother told you it's X. Right. Here's why that's not the way to, you know, I remember pancakes, something everyone struggled with and learning from your show why it is that people burn pancakes and what to do and how to avoid What did I say? Well, you put them in the thing and let the pan cool and then yep. go again. Yep. And that's why the first pancake's never very good. Yeah. Um, I'm right, right. That's the, what you said. Yeah. The, the mission statement, and there, there was one. I was sitting in my office one day, so I was still doing spots, and um, I was thinking about food shows. I was thinking about how bad they are, and I, because at the time they were kind of boring. And I was trying to learn to be a better cook, and I would watch these shows and I'd be like, "Oh God!" Another half hour has gone by, and I got a couple of recipes, and I don't know a darn thing. I don't know anything more than I did. This is when you were watching Food Network. No, no, no. Just food shows. This is before I even had Food Network. This is this is before I went to culinary school. So this is I'm doing spots. This is like 1993, 1994, something like so that. So the it was PBS shows mostly. It was PBS the, and Disco- um it was God, the, who else was it? Like Lifetime or somebody else did like great chefs of Europe and and you know, the in PBS shows. So this is before even David Rosengarten Yes. Uh, well, no, but see, I didn't have Food Network. My my cable didn't have so actually, Dave Rosengard wouldn't have been on by then probably. But I, but I you weren't watching I him. No, I wasn't watching. Uh, I I don't think I even became aware of David Rosengard until probably well well after I was in culinary school. Um, but I wrote down on a on a piece of paper one day. Uh, Julia Child, Mister Wizard, Monty Python. That's a story I've told before, and that was the entire yeah. mission statement. So the 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 Mister Wizard part was a was about debunking. Using science and or scientific approach to debunk accepted norms for 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 cooking and trying to really answer the question of why why do we do why does this why does the egg need this why does the egg why does this happen how do we control that what's a better way of doing this and how did you I'm sure you've told this part before but a lot of people who listen to this show um, may not have heard you talk about this part before and are people who are always asking me this breaking in question they're always asking me how do you 
you know, how do you get your idea to somebody? How do you break through? Hey, I have a new, and you know, all artists struggle with this idea of whether we're delusional or whether we're really an artist. That happens for a long time. Does that time. question ever get answered? Because I'm not sure. Well, uh, it, 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 the sort of whether you're acutely delusional does, I think, can get it. answered, right? So how did you, I think I know the answer to this, but did you make some first? Yes. By yourself? As not a by myself. As a the but, concept? But with, with some uh, original production partners that I had. How'd you get them and how'd we, you get the dough? They had the dough. I took it. Um <laughs> They were there. Were, there was a production team that I had worked with in a in a, a commercial house. You'd worked with as out. a director. Yeah, they 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 were a director producer team, and I had been a in a director and with, with somebody else as a producer. And then they went off and wanted to started their own company and wanted to do TV content. And so uh, when I got the idea for Good Eats, and it really started to to come together, which is actually while I was in culinary school, I knew I wanted to make a show, but what it was going to be came together. I went and I pitched them mostly for advice on where I should go because I didn't know anything about the business. I knew how to make TV commercials really and music videos. Um, and they offered to put up the money right there on, on the spot um, with one condition and that's that I was the host of the show. Oh, you originally didn't want to be a host. No. Why would I do that? I was going to strictly be behind the camera. It's where I belong. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I've got a theater degree but it doesn't really count. So I had said, I said no and I, I left and I got to like the elevators and I was like, wait, um, okay, well, I'll agree and do the pilots and then we'll find somebody for real. Did you mean that? Yeah. Did you really think, yeah. oh, we'll find somebody else? Oh, yeah. So I'll you get didn't a professional. Know you were, we'll get a professional. You didn't know you were an exceptionally good communicator? Um, I did not know. I had never been in front of the camera. But you had to know that when you walked into a room and met a group of people and engaged in conversation with them that you could hold your own and pretty much I any was of those interactions. I was so used to identifying myself as a behind-the-camera director that I did not see myself being in front of the camera. So need, you needed someone else to see you, in a way. Well, yeah, maybe. maybe. So anyway, so I agreed I agreed huh. to do the pilots, and we, and we did two pilot episodes on film. That's how old school we were. We shot on 16 mil, uh, assuming that we were going to transfer to high depth. Did which, they direct, or did. you directed the first one? Um, I did not. I did not direct. The, the original guy, that, actually another guy who's passed away in the meantime, um, directed the first two seasons, uh, four seasons of 13. So the first four sets of 13 were directed by someone else, because I was writing full time. And I also was running the culinary department, so because there wasn't anybody else to run it, so it was too much work. Um, and you know, so writing, hosting, and doing the culinary—that was my job. And um, then nothing happened. So, so we you made, make these couple we made, two episodes. We made, we made the two episodes. Two half hours. Yeah, yeah, complete half hours. And you know, we post them. It took some time to save up a little bit of money. And and um, you post them. He means post produce post, post production. Yeah, it was, you know, edit, not post edit. them online. No, no, no. no. Po po edit, sorry, mix the sound. No, I yeah. just want people to know. Yeah, no. I, I, edit. Edit. edit it and do edit the sound and finish. Yes. finish it and make um, it look right. Avid time, cheap avid time late at night in, yeah. in places that would allow you to do that. Uh, calling in a lot of favors because I'd blown a lot of money on, um, you know, during the production. And then nothing happened because nobody, uh, Food Network refused to, uh, we, we found kind of an agent type person to help us try to sell it. Food Network wouldn't even look at them because they produced everything in house. Sure. So a year goes by. Year. What are you doing? Nothing. Oh, I'm um, producing. Um, I'm working as a line producer on spots. I directed a couple more spots. I gave cooking classes. Um, I wrote uh, the uh, food newsletter for a big grocery store chain. It was pathetic. I mean, it was it was it was sad looking. And back. was this thing in your head? Did you were you like? Oh no! See, that's part. My my ex wife always chided me heavily for this because eventually. I don't want to have that level of hope anymore. So I don't want to. I don't want to be the guy that's like, should I be sitting down writing these scripts? No, no, I'm not. Not until somebody. Not until I know. I'm just not going to do it. Which ended up being a very stupid decision. Um, but what what happened in the long? Go ahead. No, that's gonna, really important. I want to. You want to like, come actually, back to that? I want to draw a circle around it because I've been in that exact same situation it's almost like it's going to hurt too much if i let it out and i do all of this work and i invest all of this and it doesn't happen i suck even worse than i suck already it's the risk of loving something yes it's the it is the risk yes. of loving something it's building it's building the frankenstein monster and he won't come alive yeah no i've had this feeling um many times where you 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 know doing the thing that i do uh, for, in that t tv like um you may be awesomely successful well, you know, but at a that thing, I'm um, 51 years old. It's like you know, been oh. 21 years of doing this or sure. whatever. 
But no, there have been many moments where it's like, do I have what it takes to uh, to really fill myself up again with hope and belief yep. that I can charge the hill? And like, isn't it simpler to just like lie down and assume some the hill will either never get charged? It'll be, and then because the thought of trying and giving everything you have only to stumble Not, is devastating. It is devastating. But the only way people. <clears throat> Everyone I know who's ever succeeded in anything even connected to the arts or show business in that finds a way to charge that finds a way to do it. Because deadlines are so important to me, though. I actually believe that when the time did come to write the scripts and I had literally, you did, yeah. I had three months to write the first season. So I worked day and night. Jeez. I mean, it was mind How'd you find out they watched it? Did you then well, have to go pitch here's, here, here's how this weird thing goes. Yeah. So, um, we were using a, a process, Kodak, um, Eastman Kodak, who made the film stock, um, was they were trying to pioneer something for, for high definition because they believed that people were going to shoot 16 and transfer it. And so they had changed the pull-down aperture. It was basically, instead of a 4 by 3 pull-down situation, it was a 16 by 9 So it was a high-def frame, a letterboxed frame, if you will, so that you could actually get more images onto the film. Uh, and it would make it more uh, budgetarily reasonable um, to, to, to shoot on film for transfer. Um, they were only doing it on 16, and you had to have you know cameras adapted and whatnot because well, it was two-claw instead of three-claw pull-down. Right. Anyway, um, and they knew that we had finished the shows, and they were curious about them and wanted to see them. And so we, we had let them see some of the shows. And they asked, and of course this is 1998 at this point, they said, we'd love to put some of that on our website. And we're like, you can put video on a website? Huh. Can you do that? Because, yeah. you know, we're on dial-ups, for God's sakes, you know, the old days. Um, and they did. They put a snippet of a scene from the very first episode up. And a programming executive at Food Network happened to go by Kodak's website. And he saw it and called us. A week later, we were in New York. A week after that, we had a deal. And, and we were shooting three and a half months later. What did that feel like to you? Um, number more one, scary or number more incredibly one, totally, 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 totally. No, the, the, the incredible, uh, incredibly satisfying lasted approximately 17 minutes and then fear like no fear ever before, because I had not taken the time I had not done the work. And of course my, my, my wife's like, now, now you are in the shit. And I was like, yeah, but it's fantastic shit. I mean, I'm, I, and because I knew this is all going to, this will all be on television. This is going to happen. I'm writing this. Opportunity of your entire life. Yeah. Everything you, I mean, like all the stuff you've done. Yeah. Food. Everything. Film. All the people that when I went to culinary school said, you are crazy. And I said, I'm going to make food shows. No, you're not. You're going to work at McDonald's. And so like that was the, 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 the heat that drove, you know, the engine. And you get this call. I, so the people who've listened to this podcast for a long time, know this i think i did say it bo willimon who makes the show who made the first four seasons of house of cards it is a great playwright and screenwriter mm -hmm. he was coming over and he's a friend and he was coming over to do a podcast with me when i got the phone call dave my partner and all this stuff had left the office for the night and i get the phone call from showtime that mm -hmm. says we've greenlit the season you're making the show and Bo comes up the stairs and we turn the mics on 10, five minutes after I got the call that starting right then, Dave and I had to write 11 episodes and with our team. I mean, I had to go make this series and you can hear me because I start asking Bo all these, you can hear, I think, my abject terror and excitement, sort of like the single greatest professional thing that had ever happened to me. And then... By the end of the thing, you can hear, I think, I'm like, I have to finish. I have to go. I can't even be doing this for another second. No. I have to move. Pa panic and excitement are very closely aligned and, and can result in great work. And so that's what you did. Yeah. You just like screwed down and said like, I'm doing Hell it. Hell yeah, I did. And and how, so I I I wrote down that um <clears throat> this question, which was how, how consonant was the show with who you were as a person? Like, was it a persona, a combination? And how much of did you decide how much to reveal yourself? Like, I th as you were writing these episodes? I, you know what? I didn't even think about it for a moment. Um, what, what turned out on camera, when I, when I see Good Eats episodes, I'm like, that's me, but it's a slightly different version of me. Always, and, even and, toward the end? And Yeah, because what you do is you start to... 
adopt mannerisms and habits that you know work and your relationship with a camera as a performer is not and maybe the difference between being an actor where you're playing a role and where you're looking at an, an audience right down the pipe and having a relationship with them is that you amplify it's like uh it's like the old eq on stereos you change the eq to better suit that tool so you and i sitting here now is not exactly precisely how i talk to a camera because i know that once me and my voice goes down that funny little furry thing and once my you know my image goes through a bunch of pieces of really expensive glass with german names on them onto some form of memory that it's different and so it's not exactly the same but it's super duper close to be really honest Right, um, and, and I the never voice that you wrote for yourself is close to yeah. the voice that you have. Absolutely, I mean, I I wrote for me, and that my the, the one oath that I made to myself is I will not do this for anybody else. I'm, I don't care what the fans say. I never read press. Luckily, there was no social media at the time. I didn't know if the show worked or didn't work. I had no feedback were you able to from make an all audience. Before any aired. Uh, I made, I made no. I, mean, I got thirteen made before the, the first whole one first aired. season. Yeah, the whole first, first season was in the aired. can before it went. But you know, these That's are days gift. when there's you know I didn't have a website and there was no social media. So the the way you knew that the show was working is you got renewed, right? Right. So as long as you're getting renewed, you don't look the monkey in the eye, right? I mean, you're like, and, and you don't know if you, I, I had no idea. Who it was is watching. binary. I have said this to everybody. That's still the case. I get so much feedback on social media, so much positive response, but the whole thing is binary. Completely. Do I get to keep making it? Do I or do, or do I, I, not? I not get to keep yep. making it? And it, oh, it is the most for me. It is truly ones and zeros. That's all it is. There's, Fully, there's it's on or off. It's on or off. It's on or off. And the thing about press, you know, especially when it's an incredibly personal project, is look, don't read press because if it's good, you might start believing it, and if it's bad, you might start believing it. Better to not freaking know That's what anybody's thinking true. and just do your thing until they don't let you do it anymore. Right. Now then, you know, eventually you start realizing you can do a book and then you do a book tour and you realize, holy crap, there are people watching. Well, sure. Whoa. And you would go on a talk show and people, and, and you, you start to understand there's a persona that's out in the right. world that's related to who you are, very right. close to who you are, not exactly very who you close are. And how home. do you make a decision? Sleeps in the room next right. door. But but I think the Good Eats remained successful simply because I just, I refused to listen to what people wanted. I, I, I acted like there wasn't an audience. I was the audience. But, but as a result, you were able to make a show that was as smart as you could make it. Literally, as smart as I as could make it. As smart as you could possibly make it. I'm only so smart, and I couldn't make it smarter than, than I am because I wouldn't let other people ride it because I'm a egomaniacal control freak. Not so much now, but I sure as hell was then. Right, and it's this all butts up really close to the whole OCD of it all, and like so, I, I you know, understand. Yeah, I understand all that. Um, I, I can see it and understand it. But when you when we talk about this and making the show as smart as you can, this is a, a question not directly about the show, but about the world. And, and mm -hmm. that is, there's like a kind of uh, like fervent anti-intellectualism running around. Is there? Days. I think that there is. I think that there's, and I'll say it this way, I think that it purports that like certain kinds of street smarts are better than things you can learn or like that certainty is better than curiosity. And I'm wondering if you perceive that or process that. I, I will tell you, I will tell you this, curiosity is the most powerful force on the earth. I agree. Um, yeah, I think and it's anything, that, anything that I have done. In fact, when people talk to me about, well, you know, you're a great teacher, blah, blah, blah. I'm actually, actually, I'm not a really great teacher. My main thing is to infect you with curiosity. If I can infect you with curiosity about food, you will get eventually up off your sofa and you will do something. Okay. It's like people say, well, I love watching your show, but I don't cook. I'm like, okay, fine. I, I, I really just want to make sure you watch certain series of uh, commercial spots that I need you to watch. Uh, you know, um, that's my actual job is I'm an entertainer. Um, but if I can infect you with curiosity and make you want to answer questions, then you will find answers to questions. And and that may be involve street smarts, as you well know. That's the, the the experiential part of life. But sometimes it isn't a book. Sometimes it's talking to someone else. It, it, it's all out there. But you've got to scratch that itch. Yeah, but, but you need the itch first. You know what I mean? Yes, you need the itch, you need Gotta curiosity, you need to want to keep learning. I sure do. Um, a world, if I, that's called stagnation. It, it, for me, not learning anymore, learning's too much freaking fun. Uh, yeah, I feel the I, same way. I mean, I'm always driven by fascination and curiosity and obsession. That's the thing that, that's how I know I'm going in the right direction. But you're also one of those people that like picks up little stuff that you, replicate out in 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 your work that that is something that, that both you and i do you know it's 
the Jaguar shark line. You know, it's it's the little it's the little in jokes that you make that are on all your scripts and, and all the things you do. There's well, always that's something a part of slightly what you're, but referential. That's being that's, that uh, is part of curiosity. That's of from being obsessed. Being obsessed. That's and I think obsession being an obsessed is movie and TV fan and. All that stuff. I have a team of writers too. I, Dave and I don't take credit those for guys all run, the. When they run lines from Blade Runner, I cry. Right. Yeah. No. The Blade Runner stuff was very satisfying to us. That I get that, teary. It's like, oh my god. That whole sequence. If, if, you, if, if somebody starts doing lines from like Dirty Dozen, I, I'm, I'll lose my no, shit. I mean, the proudest moment of my, my entire professional life, and Dave would agree, is the fact that in the and if, if you haven't watched the last episode of Billions, just just chill for a second and then come like go oh, watch it. Or, uh, this isn't even really a spoiler, but. The fact that we were able to put a Colonel Troutman line from First Blood in Paul Giamatti's mouth is like, uh, it it does feel like. And it worked. It was completely natural. Even though I questioned, would Chuck really know that? Yeah, he knows everything. Chuck Rhodes and Bobby Axelrod know everything. Yeah. They know, like you said, the smartest you could be. Those two guys know everything that Dave and I know about the world. Plus a lot more, those two guys know. Comes out of their mouths. And Taylor knows that stuff, too. And Taylor knows There are stuff. three people on the show. And Wendy, Wendy is as smart as they are, though uh, she doesn't like live in... She's, she probably hasn't obsessed over, over popular culture as much as they all have. No, that wouldn't be Wendy. Yeah, she just hasn't quite as, as much. Um, okay, so related to all this. Deep down, Wendy's not that interesting. She's not as interesting as the other three. I don't think I she's think quite. She, I think she is. I mean, I'm into her. I'm I'm into her big time, but I don't. The, the, it, well, it's a balance. I mean, it was for another because time. She's not obsessed with something. Well, this season three will be interesting. You'll enjoy watching season oh, three well, of the show. Because well, of Maggie Sift to us is this actor. Mm-hmm. We dreamed of working with her. And when we were able to have her be in the show, it was mm-hmm. like uh, just incredibly thrilling. And in a way, and I'm not going to talk about billions, uh, since you brought that part of it up, she... Wendy won season one. Season one was a stealth in our minds. It was a really a story about this woman who beat these two guys by the end. So now you're in the shadow just having watched season two. So it's a different question. Season two wasn't about that. But no, season it wasn't. one was about Wendy actually beating these two alpha dudes. Yes. And driving Get away. That. When she drives away in that Maserati with the $5 million, she's won. With the total. So yes. Uh, 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 I, Five sticks. Yeah, exactly right. Um. What do you see as your obligation as someone who like very often when are you going to like say you're not, which is part of it, but you know, will very often be like the smartest person in a room. How do you resist the urge to like dominate the conversation? How do you retain that sense of curiosity? How do you, you know, during your average interactions during the course of a day, most of the time you're going to be walking around with a bigger body of knowledge than most people you come across. I think there was a time when I had to stop myself from doing that uh, because I was trying to prove That's my question. not to everybody else that I was smart enough to be in the room, but to prove to myself that I was smart enough to be in the room. Um, and somewhere along the line, um, I, I discovered that I don't have that problem anymore. I no longer actually want to be the smartest person in the room. Yes. It's the best thing because to be around. The best thing people. is to be actually the dumber person, which doesn't mean you're dumb, but the real thrill is to be around and learn how to listen to and absorb things properly from the smarter people in the room. And it's like in production, I want to be the weak link in the chain. I, I honest to God want to have to fight to keep up with the brilliance of everybody else I'm working with. How did you learn this? It's one of the key things to being successful. How, so you, I could, I believe you that in the beginning, in the beginning, your whole show, the whole thing was like, I know all this stuff and I'm going to show well, it you. because, and I'll tell and you how why. did you get over it? Well, and, but, but let's talk about the importance of that, which is that in order to do the job, like what I do on a show like uh, Good Eats or even Our Chef America is I must establish authority. Yes. And authority isn't just being smart. It's, it's being able to access, it's being able to articulate. It's uh, there's, there's a lot in that. And so you actually have to train yourself to, to do it and to be an authority. You have to kind of wrestle with your own know-it-allness um, and you've got to try to beat yourself to, to know it all, or at least as much as you possibly can. And then I think that once you get comfortable with the idea that, you know what, actually I will still be worth something. I will still be valuable if I'm not the guy that actually knows everything. But I think that's called maturity. Yeah, it takes Artistic, though, a conscious perhaps. reason. It, it, you have to find a reason to do it, I think. Uh, well, if if that be true, I don't know when it happened. You I just know that, it, that did. it did. I, I know that, that it did. And I think a part of it is when I found myself seeking out uh, the, the possibilities of working with people that I clearly knew to be smarter than me. 
because it's like I've gotten to the part where I have made a mark enough to say this is me this is who I am I'm I'm I matter I'm a precious snowflake um but I'm not insecure with my place and my own abilities I know what I can do I know what I can't do I keep challenging that it's like now I tour a live stage show where I'm pretty freaking playing an electric guitar and singing why well, i shouldn't be able to get away with that but i keep pushing things so that well, i can right you challenge um, yourself i keep challenging myself but somewhere along the line um i i realized that i i don't have to make myself feel good about myself by being dominant over everybody in well the it's realm. interesting i just read i didn't know that your father died when you were young mm -hmm. but i just read that and i know in difficult circumstances mm -hmm. did uh and I can't imagine that, what that would be like. My, I'm still so close to my father. And even so, his approval meant so much to me for so long. Still, I'm happy that he's As it should, because it gauges our, our value system. Yes. So do you think that the loss of that affected this stuff in some way for you? Um, I'm sure if I, if I went to therapy, um, that... <sighs> And if Wendy's available, by the way, yeah. I could use somebody to talk to. Um, but um, you don't I, think about it. I don't think about that. But you know why? Because I, I, I only look at things um, in myself like that if I'm trying to fix something. You know, it's kind of like, okay, I've been married twice and divorced twice. Why is that? Why does that happen? That's probably not somebody else. That's me. I, I make that happen. So if I'm trying to change behavior or understand why I'm doing something or why I'm replicating something, then I look for answers like that. But I never look that far back, to be really honest, because I can't change anything about that. No, you can only change how you process. You yeah. can change your process. I can change it. my process and I can change my behavior. But I, you know, I if you can change the meaning that those things have for you, can well, you? Well, you can you can perhaps reassign it in, in a certain way, um, and and that might be worthwhile um, in in doing so. But I, I don't think that I can look at anything particular in my career and draw out, oh, well, because my dad died at this point, I did this and I did this and I did this. Maybe. But if I start to unravel that, if anybody who's kind of okay with where they are starts to unravel things, then my big fear is how will it affect what I do going forward? And there's always the work. And, you know, it's like I'm getting ready to relaunch a, a version 2.0 of Good Eats for digital. And I'm kind of like... I'm a little scared about it because... Because you're a different person. Because I'm not quite exactly the same guy that made those 252 episodes. That's why it's worth doing, though. Well, it is, because, because just but it'll be different. It'll be different. And, and you know, it's funny. You know, you, talk, you read uh, things written by filmmakers like Kurosawa, who was always fascinated by his own changes as a person and how they reflected in the work. Of course, it's hard to imagine Kurosawa ever being doubtful about his work. But those that are challenged by kind of uh, wrestling with their own... Uh, personalities and living in their own skin results in, in interesting work. Well, one of the things Kurosawa said is that the artist never looks away. Never looks away. And that to me... Do you know how amazingly threatening that statement is? Yeah, I fail. I will say that I, I've said this before. I don't live up to it. Oh. There are things, especially from when I became a parent on... Uh, there are things I have to I have to look away from. Uh, I know I shouldn't, and as an art, but as an as an artist, you have to dive in. But that's why I was asking you the question about your past and your yeah. your life is because as an artist trying to move forward, it, it's like um, at a certain point, is it safe to start turning that stuff around and looking at it and seeing? It I will turn I will turn it around it not? if I feel that it's useful. Yeah. But I'm not going to do it because I want to wallow in some kind of neuroses, uh, sure. marinade in my own blah, it's, blah, blah. It's, it's good that you know the psychoanalytic terms, even well, if you stay away. Well, even if you stay away from their useful, therapeutic offices. If it is useful. If you told me, you know what, Alton, if you sat down with, with you know, Wendy Rhodes, um, you know, once a week, your work would improve this amount or it would unlock your ability to access this piece of you that would be a really great tool for doing, then I'd be all for it. But for its own sake, eh. Well, yeah, eh. because, well, but for, um, I would say that, first of all, you want us to take a chance. It is absolutely taking a chance because um, like in anything else, there are a lot of hosts. There's only there are a lot of filmmakers. There's only one Alvin Brown. So a lot of people who sit in those chairs and tell you to go on the couch are probably not great at it and aren't going to be the person who can help you to uncover that. But, you know, if uh, Tony oh. Robbins would give you a few hours, it'd be worth it probably. I know, his head's immense from what I'm told. It would probably scare the hell out of me. He would help. <laughs> um, not that you need it. So uh, a few more things. Because sure. actually, weirdly, this time has passed quickly. We have some more time. We've talked Kurosawa a little. A little tiny bit. Um, 
So I look at your I look at your Twitter feed, and it's quite anodyne. And um, nobody's ever called it that. It well because you are so razor sharp and immensely culturally aware. But it seems to me that you're you're not using Twitter to really hammer home a point of view. Uh, no, other than, and I'm no, I'm not. Yeah. Well, first off, my you know. I, I, Twitter only interested me when I when I thought there was a system to be hacked, and and for a long time and still now I, I do most of my tweets on Post-it notes that I stick on the screen and take a photo of, and and I did that because one, screw you, 140 characters, I need to be able to draw, and I want people to not just be looking at their own uh, sure. replies because everybody people would get to well we don't know if he's talking to us or not until we look at the thing, so uh, it became a new communication form for me and a new artistic expression to be really honest. Um, um, but point of view, no, never crossed my mind. I, I don't present that. I, yeah, I mean, I read where you said that Trump might be the first time that you weren't going to vote Republican. Did I say that on Twitter? No, somewhere in the world. Not on Twitter. No, I didn't say that on Twitter. Because I believe not on Twitter, but I read it somewhere. Oh, because Twitter is so absolutely positively overrun with politics that it's almost no fun anymore. There's a lot of politics on. No, I know. And I know. I'm it's hard to avoid. It's, it's hard to avoid. I've unfollowed brilliant people because they won't shut up. Yeah, I try to limit my Trump tweets, but it's it gets me so I, I'm so scared and sad for the world that it it, it gets me. You know, um, I will I will I will share some with you. I haven't I haven't told anybody. Um, I'm I am politically I am not apolitical, but I'm I'm I am not big on on sides, um, mm-hmm. and I I don't trust anybody quite frankly, uh, that wants the job of president, I automatically distrust. Um, so I think we're kind of screwed either way. Uh, but the, the interesting thing, the thing I'm actually overjoyed personally about the way things have gone is that um, my 17-year-old daughter has become a galvanized young woman with a mission and a point to her life that brilliant though she is and always has been, she's got a brain box like I can't even really have conversations with her. I mean, I, I've asked her for a DNA test to make sure huh. she's mine. She she won't do it. Um, um, is that it? It is it in one in one night she became a different person, and the person that she's become, I dig big time. And so she is awake, and she is vibrant, and she is glowing. Um, and and it's all because of what happened. And it's like now I always knew you could change the world, but now I'm thinking you might actually do it. <laughs> That's fantastic. So for me personally, I'm like, you know what? I'll take what comes. I'll take what comes. Sure. But you don't want to engage in it. You want to let her do it, her generation. I'll let her generation engage. You don't want to. Because I've got absolutely nothing to say. I don't have a freaking thing to say. I don't understand any of it. Um, What do you mean you don't understand it? Well, it's like I want to peel peel back until I figure out where it started. I want to figure out how we now live in a world that is in a country that is so, so divided and so polarized. I'm not going to get into the right and wrongs of, oh, I hate this person or don't like this person or this person's idiot or whatever. But the truth is we are deeply polarized. The interesting thing is that without even knowing it, I have profited from this because I do a live touring show that's about food. And guess what? Everybody wants to laugh and everybody likes food. So it doesn't matter if I'm in a blue state or a red state. I can fill a house with people that have a good time because we're united by food and we need that. We desperately need hospitality. We desperately need connectivity that food provides. So, you know, it's it's funny. I've seen food um, do have two really big effects in my in my in my my modern career. Nine eleven changed Food Network because everybody just wanted to look at some mashed potatoes, and food brought everybody together. And now, food's pretty much the only thing holding us all together. I truly believe that because the act, the primal biblical act of me sharing food with you or you sharing food with me is a connection and a contract that is absolutely magical. And I don't use that word very often because most magic is bullshit. Um, But because of that, I think that the importance of food in our culture, because when people ask me, why is food still a thing? I'm like, because we freaking need it. In every way. In every way possible. We need to be connected to each other. We need connectivity to our heritage. We need connectivity to our families. And we need connectivity to strangers. I like sitting down and eating with strangers. When's the last time you ate with a stranger? 
I do it. it. Should do it. Well, I do it. Hey, can I share a table with you or blah, blah. The things, it is absolutely a neutralizer for everything. I love eating a sushi bar alone. Yeah, me too. That's a real, uh, maybe we can do that together sometime at opposite ends of the sushi opposite bar. Ends the no, sushi. I, we can have a fight with each other yeah, about. But I, um, I love eating alone at a sushi bar. And one of the things that happens is, first of all, you connect yeah. with the chef. Oh. And then if you're in an incredibly good place, and you start to see the people next to you reacting. Some of, and always somebody's never had uni, and somebody, you know, and then they're gonna try, and you can say, no, no, it's not just, and you can, I love that experience, and I agree with you about food. It's why it's in so many ways so central to me, and it's in, in our work too. It's always in our work, right? We use food in the, a very The sushi bar, way. people don't, re I shouldn't say that, that's, that's demeaning. I, I think that people should more deeply appreciate that. I think the reason a lot of us are drawn to sushi bars is because the act of being there in front of a chef who is making a, cutting up little pieces of their soul because these people work so hard and practice so religiously and then they give it to you and you take it from them. It's handed off in, in a real sushi. It's not even, it's not laid on the counter. You know what I'm talking about. They offer it to you. That act of hospitality is one of the things that I, I worry about to some degree in our popular world because so many people that become chefs do it to become stars. No, it is an act of service. And, and the people that are very good at it and the people that are actually really enriched personally never forget that cooking for someone is actually its own gift. I love that you're saying this. Here, I made this for you. Yes. Now you take it and here's the other part. You now actually have a responsibility in this equation. It's not just, oh, well, I paid for it. It's mine. I'm going to eat it. No, 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 no. Hospitality goes two ways. It is now your turn to be gracious and you should have gratitude. I've like never agreed with somebody more in my life. This thing, and it's it's funny, uh, Mario, so Batali mm -hmm. is a real friend of mine. I, I love him. He's a great guy. Been an, an incredible He's been an incredible friend to me in many ways. But he was telling me a story recently about post 9-11 and how a bunch of the cooks downtown, you know, the next day they were down there. And he just casually, he wasn't telling it about himself. It was not a self-aggrandizing story in any way. He was talking about cooks. And he said, that's what cooks are. That's what cooks do. They're built in that way. Yes. They're going to be down there and they're going to be holding out plates of food. And they're going to be take this. Want to give it to those people? He's like, yep. that's just what we know how to. And I, it was really hit me. It was a deep moment for me. It's an act of service, and I know that it's true. The sushi bar thing, though, um, that scene in in our show where Wags freaks out at the person for putting ginger on the sushi, that comes from not that it's uncouth to put ginger on the sushi. It's disrespectful. It's not appreciating and understanding this communication, this moment that's happening between you and this person uh -huh. who has spent ten years to learn how to cook the egg. Um, how to prepare the egg, not to cook the egg. How to ten prepare the tamago. Years, how ten to get, years how to, to make that right. tamago. And so that that moment is to me sacred. You know, I'm an atheist, and there are a few things that I think are sacred, but I do think that that is. I think that is sacred. There, there is a spiritual connectivity. You know, I, I've often said that the, the the main miracle of food, if there if there is one, is its ability to connect human beings to other human beings. That's it. You know, that's in the end, that's the important. Well, thing. that's what you communicate on your show. Two more things, and then we're you're done. Um, can you tell me the first, the first time, the first time that you noticed food that you loved something when you were young, and then the first time you remember being blown away by something as like a more, you know, when you were 17 or 18 or 20. Sure. And what each of those things were and how it how it hit you and what it did to you. I had a bizarre, dark relationship with food when I was a kid because I didn't, um, I wasn't drawn to the ordinary stuff. Um, I, I had um, secret things. Um, really? For instance, um, I was born in Southern California. My parents had cocktail parties a lot. And as a very young child, I would get up in the morning after a cocktail party and I would find glasses that still had scotch in them. I didn't want to get drunk. I didn't know what that was, but that aroma, because it smelled like Band-Aids, and I had a thing for the <laughs> smell of old Band-Aids. You know what I'm talking? You know, yeah, I, I know. you open the box. Yeah. I was the guy that you remember the metal box that the Band-Aids came in. Very I, clearly, I would open it and smell right. that um, that that aroma, and and so I I would do that. Uh, my my secret food passion, um, and you're maybe just old enough to remember um, Gainsburger's dog food. Gainsburgers oh, was like a, it was like a meat patty uh, that was wrapped in uh, yeah. cellophane. Yeah, I had a thing for them when I was a kid, and and I, I ate the, I ate the dog's food. 
Oh, I straight up. Uh, usually, would you, you get know, caught? Raw, uh, I did get caught a few times. Um, and was it horse meat? I don't know what the hell was in there. I'm not I've even sure. I'm not sure there was actual meat. I'm not. I I don't know what was actually. You still in there. haven't looked. No. I don't know that I need to know. I mean, well, of course, yeah, I probably do need to know. But, um, and I also remember the first time that food betrayed me. How? What was okay. that? Um, I was, uh, I have vivid memories of this. I was four, I was four years old. And I, where I lived in Northern, sorry, Southern California, we still had a milkman, still had milk delivery. And I got up one Saturday morning and, and I got, uh, there were two bottles of milk that had oh. come. Do you know where I'm going with that? You, yeah, tell the story. And, and I uh, was going I went to get my Captain Crunch and I got my bowl of Captain Crunch, which I adored mostly because when you rub it up against the roof of your mouth, it's sharp and it kind of tears at your mouth. Maybe I've got an issue. And, um, and I, and I poured my milk, not noticing that there was that some, one of the milks had a blue lid and one had a green lid. And, um, and I put this big thing in my mouth. I can tell you right now, it was a long time before I would have buttermilk again. Right. Yeah. And, uh, that's when I realized, oh my God, the, oh yeah, yeah, Captain Crunch with buttermilk. Yeah, the sound guy's like, oh my God, that's horrible. The later revelation, um, the, uh, I was 20 and I was lucky enough to um, be in a program at my university where I studied in, in Italy for a semester and did uh, theater in a little bitty town um, in, in Tuscany called Cortona. And off on the edge of this town was this this guy, like this gypsy guy that lived in a hut and had a little wood fire oven and he had like three little busted up tables out in front of his place and you went and he made pizza and you didn't order it. It was whatever the heck it was he was making and he would put it down and you would put down money and he would take some money and there would be some wine and that was it. And and a friend, because um, I knew a guy that actually lived in this town, he takes me there and this guy comes out and this pizza, I'd never seen anything like it. It's misshapen. And now we all know what these kind of artisanal things look like. And there was nothing on it but olive oil, shaved Parmesan cheese, and baby artichokes, which I'd never had before. I had artichokes, but not baby artichokes. that had been like perfectly cured. And, and this glass of like just cheap red wine that God probably was made one hill away or something. And, uh, you know, transformative. It was like in that, in that one slice of pizza, I became a culinary... Um, That's the best. I, I, not a gastronome, but I was suddenly awake to it. I was suddenly very much awake to the possibilities of food. That's like the Robert Parker never story. Stopped. Yeah. It's like the Robert Parker story. Like that moment when he drank that thing and it was like the world exploded. Boom. So the world exploded. I the mean, world I, exploded. It's, it's, just, I, it's just like what happens in Ratatouille. You know, it's like, you know. You, no, it's you, when, you, I mean, uh, I, it's when I saw Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, the You know, I'd seen two other movies in Ra Raising Arizona and She's Gotta Have It started the thing. Then a few years later in 1990, so that was in the she's 80s. She's got to have it, which and I still say is Spike Lee's best movie. It's his second or third best movie. But that, and well, I what's saw What's his that, best then? Come on. I mean, do the right thing in Malcolm X. Mm. Then she's got to have it. But when I saw, uh, then when I saw Pulp Fiction, everything exploded and it was, that was it. I then had to do, it was a couple more years, but that was the thing. The was world it. exploded. world exploded. Me. And so that's what happened when you ate that world pizza. exploded. The world exploded. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I'm looking, I'll tell you people. But I am now looking up what Gaines burgers are. Do I want to know? Un, it's unclear. Well, you would eat horse meat if you were. Oh away yeah, in the of world, course I so would. So that's not an issue. It doesn't say the word horse yet. Everyone, <laughs> look it up, and you can tweet to Alton and me what it is. I can't yet tell what is in Gaines burgers dog food, though. I love that you ate them. Oh, I did. This is one of the most interesting conversations. I would eat one right now. No, you wouldn't. I think I might. I, I would. I would have to give it a try because I mean, yes, I've changed my flavor, my taste. But I bet there would be one little flavor in there, one little chemical emulsifier that would trick me, and I would be right back there sitting. Um, in, well, in the it's not that far California. from steak tartare. No, the way it was like the little pieces no, of the game burger, the way it looked, and I'm sure you love steak tartare. I adore it, and I would put capers on that thing right now. I'm gonna capers, you, a little lemon juice. Did you do a steak tartare good eats? No. Because I was going to say, I will I would in the go, digital version. I would go right now and see. That's what you're. Sh I would go right now and watch that. I will, but see, that was a raw food, and they wouldn't let me do it because there were safety concerns, and Food Network didn't want to do it. But now you will. Oh, So yeah. as you leave, people can find you on Twitter, Alton Brown. What's your website? Um, AltonBrown.com. Are you still doing the podcast? I'm still doing the podcast, which all lives on on my um, on my site or on iTunes, the Alton Brown Cast. Uh, we have new ones coming up soon. My tour relaunches in October. Um, Alton Brown Live Eat Your Science. So that's and then when do you imagine your new food show next will show year. up online? Next year, it'll be next year. It won't so be this year. So follow on on Twitter. Um, next time I see you, I want to talk more about this. Uh, what I think is the need for your voice to get in there about. Curiosity, because the to me one of the worst things that's happening in Washington is this idea 
that uh, we know everything we need to know and we don't have to be curious. And I think that's a big part of what I don't like about what they do. Belief over knowledge. Yes, and is yet, a problem. What today. is odd about that is that it's work, it worked very, very well for the Catholic Church for a very long time. Well, sure. The Spanish Inquisition and things that leading up to it were well, based that's on what worries me belief about this idea over, of belief yeah. in. Uh, I believe it. Therefore, knowledge is not that important. To yes, me anymore, the, I, I believe basically what I believe. just um, uh, a belief in American exceptionalism without actually reminding people what the values are that lead to it and what has to happen is a problem. I think. I see your point. I don't think I've ever looked at it quite like that before. Well, fact, facts will out, you know. I mean, um, it, it, they always do. You know, Galileo did eventually, you know, get out of jail. That's a great place. To, Galileo did eventually get out of jail. And um, as we will all eventually get out of this somehow. Alton Brown, thank you for coming here. If you saw any spoilers on the wall. I didn't. Of the Billions Riders I Room. I did not. Go to your grave with them, sir. I would never. I don't like spoilers. I think everybody should get every juicy moment and 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 enjoy. Get every juicy moment and enjoy. That could be the slogan for the next show. Done. Alton Brown, You're thanks. Welcome. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. If you want to write to me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.